from a particularly journalistic standpoint, it's frustrating to see how shallow the coverage has been and lacking of substance. It's about the show. And that has a lot to do with obviously who the front runner is. Donald Trump is a showman and he is playing the news media, particularly the cable networks, like a fiddle. And we are not pushing hard enough on him as well as the other candidates on what it would be like for that person to become the president of the United States, which is a hugely important job. Welcome to It's All Journalism. My name is Michael O'Connell here with another podcast about the changing state of digital news and conversations with people who are reporting the news. In studio today with me is Gabrielle Levy. Uh, she's a political reporter at U.S. News and World Report. Welcome, Gabby. Hi. Hi. Yeah. Now, we met at an event about a week ago, and we got involved in a conversation about politics and the way women are portrayed in media. I figured that uh, since uh, you're the political reporter at, uh, at uh, U.S. News and World Report, you might have some thoughts and some observations about uh, the campaign season so far. So what, what have you been up to at this point? Yeah, indeed. So we are watching the race rapidly narrow on both sides. There's some talk about whether or not these things are really over. Both parties, I think, are quickly coming to a conclusion that they're going to have an inevitable nominee pretty soon here. Let's talk about the Democrats first. Sure. Um, this is actually we're, we're recording this on the 27th of February. It's a week after Jeb Bush has uh, uh, stepped out and uh, a day after Chris Christie um, or Governor Christie endorsed uh, Donald Trump. So things are have been kind of lively in the last week or so. But mm. to talk about the Democrats, um, do you see that there's going to be a, a separation there fairly quickly or it seems like it's much closer than the Republican race? Well, it. It looks closer than I think it really is, and that comes down to delegate math. Obviously, we've got South Carolina today, and Hillary Clinton is expected to run away with it there. And then we've got Super Tuesday in a couple of days, and she's expected to, to do quite well in a lot of the Super Tuesday states. And because Democrats do every state proportionally, so Republicans, which we can get into, Republicans stop doing proportional delegation, delegate distribution pretty soon here. But Democrats do proportional all the way, which means that it can stay kind of close. But when you start to have a bunch of states where one person is winning by some margin, it becomes harder and harder for the person who's behind to catch up. Uh, so if Clinton is able to rack up wins in the states that are coming up this week on Super Tuesday, then again on March 5th, the 8th and the 15th, which all favor her pretty heavily. There's some Midwestern states where Bernie Sanders is going to do a little bit better and may even win. He's obviously going to win Vermont by a lot, but Vermont's a small state with a few delegates. She could start to build up a lead that doesn't look very big, but would be really, really hard for him to catch her. So what, what's happening is is the the front runners are sort of becoming front runners. Yes. They're, they're, the, yes. the, the, they're, they're sort of separating themselves from the pack. Mm -hmm. if, this were a, if this were a long distance race, we're starting to see maybe who's in the front. Right. And we switch over to the Republicans, which I think from, I think you probably would agree that from a, a journalistic standpoint, has been getting a, a hell of a lot of coverage proportionately. Yes. Uh, for a lot of different reasons. <laughs> uh, I am I, not thrilled with how how that race has been covered. From a particularly journalistic standpoint, it's frustrating to see how shallow the coverage has been and lacking of substance. It's about the show, and that has a lot to do with, 
obviously who the front runner is, Donald Trump, is a showman and he is playing the news media, particularly the cable networks, like a fiddle. And we are not pushing hard enough on him as well as the other candidates on what it would be like for that person to become the president of the United States, which is a hugely important job. And I don't know what Donald Trump would be like as president. Do you? I mean, he has given almost no indication of what it he would be like as president other than completely unpredictable. No, no. And a very amazing comfort with pretty much saying anything that would make the particular audience he is speaking to happy. Yes. Uh, which which is really kind of strange because usually what happens in, in, in presidential races and political races is there's a sense of accountability. You said mm-hmm. this in Iowa you know, why are you saying this here? Right. And most candidates would would have a degree of, uh, for lack of a better word, shame about uh, being caught out in what a perceived difference of message. But that does not seem to be the issue here. No, he is he's shameless. And when he is presented with different, you know, he makes one statement one time and makes a different statement another time. And, and when that is shown to him, he manages to wiggle out of that corner it's pretty impressive. You got to hand it to him. He's really doing an amazing job at beating, you know, the political reporters and the moderators of debates at their own game. Mm-hmm. But that's, you know, to step outside of my journalist box here for a second. I don't think that's terribly good for the country if we can't vet our candidates the way that we're supposed to. Well, and it seems to be uh, something that the Republican mainstream is not particularly happy with either. I mean, Lindsey Graham yesterday, mm-hmm. we, there, we had a headline come through on AP using the word batshit. Yeah, that, that he com- said that at the congressional dinner on uh, Thursday night. <laughs> that my party has gone batshit. Crazy. And um, so that's, I mean, it's so weird because the message that Trump is sort of, you know, he's presenting himself as a populist outsider and so anything that the the mainstream Republicans would would say is going to be feed into that narrative that they're, oh, they're just, you know, going to be running on the same old message mm-hmm. sort of thing. They're not being outside. I'm, I'm a maverick. I'm an outsider, which is weird because, you know, the Republicans in the past have, have prided themselves on having candidates, Sarah Palin, uh, John McCain, who, who described themselves as mavericks. Sure. Yeah, it's uh, Lindsey Graham is sort of an interesting character in this whole process. He. That he came into U.S. News's office about six months ago when he was still in the race and predicted that something like this would happen. He is has always been somebody who is willing to sort of say things about his party that you're not supposed to say about your own party. So I was not surprised to see his comments this week. But in terms of the outsider status of Trump, on the one hand, he is really tapping into some frustrations that the party has earned, I think, by both pushing against the president and not being honest with its base as to what is possible based on how, you know, how the different branches of government actually work. And because they have been sort of promising more than they can deliver in terms of repealing the Affordable Care Act and stopping the immigration actions and things like that, they've raised the expectations of their base, but they have not been able to follow through. And so they have really dug this hole for themselves. Yeah. And you can yeah. see that in the way that uh, Congress has, has tried to deal or like politicize, not that this is a new thing, politicizing the budget process, shutting down the government a couple of years ago for a political move to try to defund 
Obamacare and then failing to do that. And then, mm-hmm. you know, we had a we had a, a shift in the, uh, the leadership in the House because the former speaker was perceived as somebody who was a failure at, at derailing Obamacare exactly. and uh, the Affordable Care Act. So interesting times we live in, politically speaking. Yes. And I think there's a lot. There's also I mean, uh, what else has be- become part of the the narrative and a lot of the discussion around what's going on in this race is also, you know, the change in demographics of, of the of the the electorate. I think I remember it was I want to say it was the last presidential election that that's, I, people were talking about. Well, this may be the last presidential election where white males have have control of a lot of the decision making in this. That's absolutely true. Uh, it's people talk a lot right now about the. African-American women basically being the most important electorate, they vote at higher levels than almost any other demographic. Obviously, people who are older come out more than than people who are younger, which has been a really interesting thing to watch in this election where you've got somebody like Bernie Sanders who is just killing it with the younger kids, you know, college age kids. I think 20s and 30s millennials. 19 to or 18 to 24 is his best and he does well. 25 to to 30 and 30 to uh, like 45. But his his really best group is that college age group. But they turn out in the lowest numbers. And and so this revolution that he's been talking about hasn't so far come to pass. Turnout on the Democratic side is really quite down, whereas uh, turnout on the Republican side is up. Well, by the, a lot. The Republicans usually do a good job of getting their their voters out to the to the polls. Yes. But then you have a Democratic candidate who is running on this idea of turning out millions and millions of new voters. And that's not coming to be so far. Obviously, we've got a long way to go. But in terms of demographics themselves, when you're looking at particularly minority groups that are growing in the size of their percentage of the electorate and expect are expected to continue to do so, it becomes really hard for a Republican Party that has not been able to reach those groups whoever win a national election, they could do well in local elections and state houses where they can play that game to their own advantage when state houses draw their districts in favorable ways when it comes down to actually winning all 50 states. They noted this as a problem in, in 2012 when they sat down after that election and they, the RNC put out that document that said, here's where we messed up and we have to do a better job of reaching Latinos, reaching African-Americans, reaching women, especially unmarried young women and they've done almost none of it they yeah. they've have they've really not shown much interest or ability in fixing the problems that they themselves highlighted 4 years ago after uh Mitt Romney really didn't come close to to beating Barack Obama so it's how if demographics are destiny how they win in November or in any subsequent year, unless they're able to find a way, a message and a platform that can convince more African-American and Latino voters in particular to come to their side. And some of the things that the front runner in the Republican Party has said going against um, certainly are creating ripples in the um, Latino community. Absolutely. In, in big ways. Yeah. And, and that's a populace that in many ways, you know, if we look at the, the uh, Latino family, uh, many of whom are, are church-going people who might share many of the same, you know, Christian uh, ethical beliefs that uh, the, the traditional base of the Republican Party would get behind. I mean, you're, you're sort of telling those people that you're not part of our party. 
Sure. It was an interesting thing to watch Donald Trump get up on the stage in Nevada on Tuesday and say, I won with Hispanics, which technically he did in that he got about 46 percent of the Hispanics who voted in the Republican primary or the Republican caucus in Nevada on Tuesday, except that that was only about 8 percent of the total turnout of the Republican primary. And Nevada is a is a heavily uh, Hispanic state. Mm -hmm. So it was, I think, 19 percent of the Democrats electorate on the previous Saturday. And that was the largest non-white group that came to the Democrats polls. So and the Washington Post did a, a survey that came out this week that basically said Democrats are going to get Latinos votes at least two to one, no matter who the nominees are, mm-hmm. because the Republicans have dug themselves such a hole with this population that they don't care which Democrat or which Republican is going to be running. At least 60 percent of Latinos are not even considering the Republican nominee. Yeah. And it, it's weird because I, I remember seeing uh, within the last month or so, there was a a sort of demo- demographics look at elections in the South in the next, certainly in the Southwest in the next, you know, decade. And very soon there'll be a point where the majority of the the voters will be Hispanic and that the thinking will be that those very red states now, what everybody thinks are red states, are going to suddenly start switching blue. Sure. Texas is probably a few years away from being a, a truly purple state. Same thing with Arizona. Again, we this is a population that doesn't turn out to vote as much as other demographic groups. I know that there are organizations that are trying very hard to change that. But as in terms of purely eligible voter numbers, absolutely, they are really changing the face of the electorates in those heavily Latino states. It's not quite there yet. I don't think we're going to see it truly be a factor in 2016, but maybe by 2020, certainly mm-hmm. by 2024. Yeah. The other thing we, we, we always have to remember when we're talking, we're, we're in the midst of the the primary race. The primary race is very different than the the general election. The primary, you 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 the people you're talking to are the people in the base. So they're gonna in the Republican side they're gonna be more conservative, and on the, on the Democratic side they're gonna be more liberal. Hence, you know, uh, Trump is doing really well in conservatives. Uh, Bernie Sanders is doing much better than uh, people anticipated because he's he he tends to be more liberal than than Hillary Clinton. So as the frontrunners move forward, as they become the nominees, then the narrative becomes more mainstream. And the trick is not just to get your, your base out, but to get those people who are on the fence in your party. And they maybe even try to get some people in the general populace. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens when we get to the general election, because both Trump and Sanders are appealing to independence in ways that is a little bit unusual for a primary race. But there are a lot of, I think, moderate Republicans who are horrified at the things that, you know, Trump is saying. And I think there are a lot of moderate Democrats who are looking at Sanders and going, I don't recognize my party. And so we may see some crossover depending on who the nominees are. I think, you know, obviously somebody like Hillary Clinton, who has a long record in public life and has a lot of people who just don't like her. Yeah, people forget how much the Clintons were reviled. Yeah, she. so she, you know, there may be some people who might have voted for, um, if you're a moderate Republican and you really hate what Trump is doing, you might consider the Democratic nominee, but it's Hillary Clinton, so, meh, you maybe know, you maybe not. Maybe you don't go to the polls. 
I would expect now. I think if we have a Trump Clinton election, it's going to be a relatively low turnout year. Both of them have pretty high unfavorables. And while you have on both sides, I think there will be an argument of we have to keep that person out of the White House. Mm -hmm. And that will bring some people to the polls. I think there's enough that our people are going to say, I don't see myself in either one of these candidates. It's sort of a sad, um, well, this whole thing is sad in many different ways, but mm-hmm. it's a sad sort of, you know, rather than I want to go vote for somebody who speaks what what I believe and, you know, I feel represents us, represents the country the best, that it's more of, you know, I'm voting against uh, the other person. It's always been a lesser of two evils yes, argument, been, right? Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think so. Maybe I'm just too being too naive. Well, I mean, that, that does bring up. The question of whether or not we get a third candidate yeah. in the general, uh, whether or not that's Michael Bloomberg or somebody else. I think he probably stays out if Hillary's in, because I think he probably looks at it and says, if I get in and it's Hillary versus any of the Republicans, I pull more from the Democrat side than the Republican side. And I put a Republican in the White House. Mm-hmm. And I don't think based on his positions that that would be something he would want. Now, egos sort of a difficult thing to to factor into this. And if he really wants to run for president, I don't think he could win unless it is like a Ted Cruz, Bernie Sanders, Bloomberg race. Because in that case, you have a Democrat, Democratic Socialist and a Republican who are both appealing to the furthest extreme sides of their parties and leave a lot of people in the middle going, I don't recognize either of these candidates as somebody that I who shares my values or somebody who I would support, therefore a moderate in the middle would have a better chance of actually doing well. Right. Whereas if it's somebody who's like, you know, Clinton who can appeal more to the middle, somebody like Bloomberg would pull a lot of her support from her and less support from the Republican side and probably put a Republican in the White House. So, I mean, there was talk before and, and uh, Trump has said that he would not run as a, th- a third candidate, but now we see him, being, you know, more and more likely to be the 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 candidate for the Republican Party, you know, in a scenario where he's a third party candidate, you know, that pretty much splits the, the Republican Party. Yes. Now, again, it gets into delegate math, but you start to hear Marco Rubio has started to really push the idea of a brokered convention, which is probably the only way he becomes the nominee at this point. That is to say that in the rest of the primary states, Trump fails to get the majority mm-hmm. of the delegates. Even if he has most of the delegates, they'd go through a round of voting. At that point, the pledged delegates are no longer pledged to the candidate that won in oh, wow. in the primary states. And that is where you get sort of the wheeling and dealing old style. It's been a while since we've had that. Yeah. yeah. And so that is that's the scenario in which I think Marco Rubio becomes the nominee. At that point, does Trump run as an independent? Probably. Mm-hmm. He's already starting to hint that in a scenario where he is not the nominee, he could that would be a violation on the Republican Party's side I of have, the promise that they made not to mistreat him. And therefore, he would be free of his promise not to run as a as an independent. Plus, assuming that he would have the majority of delegates going into the first round, he could say, I've you know, the voters have spoken. Your delegates have spoken that I should be the uh, right if he gets the, a plurality, the, but not a majority. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That's a, definitely an interesting scenario. I mean, and this is an election. This is a, a certainly a primary season where things have happened that every week is a new surprise. Yes. 
I think when we, we were talking the first time that uh, last week, or, you know, we, we talked briefly about, you know, Jeb Bush, you know, because he, he seemed like he was on the ropes and he was like, well, how long do you think Jeb Bush is going to be? And you're like, well, that and then, of course, the next day he, he drops out. Mm-hmm. Things go very, very quickly. So you're a journalist. Yes. <laughs> how, how, do you, how do you cover this? What is what, what are your priorities going out there and covering this race? Well, so I'm doing a lot of fast turnaround stories, some analysis and and so I am in a position where I have to sort of spread out what I'm doing. I don't cover a single candidate or a single race. And so I, I try to be as even handed as I can not to write about one candidate repeatedly on any given day. You know, both races try not to do any stories that are relentlessly negative about the same candidate, you know, I try to be fair, is what yeah, I'm saying. You try to be like a like a freaking journalist. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. And you're not the you're you're one of several yes. Uh, uh, yes. political reporters covering this the election. Mm-hmm. We have uh, people who have been in a lot of the states so far. I'm going to be at CPAC next week, where at least some of the Republican candidates are expected to speak. It'll be really interesting to see because CPAC starts the day after Super Tuesday. Just how panicked or happy or or yeah or you know these these are the most conservative party not even party loyalists but but tr- the true real conservative members of the Republican party who may have very mixed opinions about what's going on uh in their side of the race so I'll be really interested to see what happens yeah yeah now where's that at National Harbor. Oh, oh well. So that's not that far for you to to go. No, no, it's, a, <laughs> it's pretty it's close. A short, it's a short drive. So, did you did you set out to become a political reporter? Or what was your sort of journalist journey to where you got here? Once I decided I wanted to be a journalist, it was pretty obvious I was going to go into political journalism. When was that? College. College. Where'd yeah. you go to school? Tufts University. Okay. Yeah, just cool. outside of Boston. Boston. So, what was it that uh, that made you decide that you wanted to be a journalist? Well, I've always been very interested in politics and world events. And I started out studying international relations. And when I decided that that wasn't the track that I wanted to stay on, I took stock of my skills and realized that I was interested in, you know, I was still interested in current events and I was a pretty darn good writer. And so it seemed like a natural fit. Were and my you, mother said, I told you so. Oh, were you a, <laughs> uh, were you a journalism student or did you get another degree? Degrees in music and English, and I have a master's degree in journalism. Okay, yeah. So after at that point, I said, okay, I need to get some schooling. And <laughs> well, and that's not an unusual path. I, a lot of the journalists that I've I've met uh, over my career, many of the best ones are ones who didn't start out as journalists. Who you know, who got to a point and said, like you, I'm a pretty good writer. I could write this up. This interests me, and they turn out to be really good journalists. Now, you were at uh, WBUR. Was that your first job? Uh, yes, I was an intern at WBUR my senior year at Tufts. What were you doing there? I was doing web producing, so hmm. making audio, you know, the things that were on the radio, making them <laughs> show what, up on the internet. That's what I I mean, do. Now, now it seems like that, that's such an obvious thing, but it was relatively new at the time. I mean, you know, that was... WBUR was just getting its first, not its first website, but NPR had just rolled out a a new, uh, it was a WordPress-based CMS that was customizable for each of the stations. And WBUR was the first of the local stations to be put onto this system where they could 
easily feed NPR stories back, you know, on host NPR stories on the WBUR.org site as opposed to sending readers to NPR.org. Sure. So that, you know, for WBUR in terms of web traffic, that was a, a huge improvement. And the system was fantastic. WordPress still is the easily the best yeah. CMS that I have ever worked on. You know, what, uh, we all we all complain about the ones that we use. And <laughs> are, is so uh, U.S. News is not a WordPress. Site? We're, a, we're a custom. Yeah. 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 No, I, it, WordPress is we switched over uh, to WordPress the middle of last year. And, and it's, you know, I'd had experience on WordPress. It's so much easier. Yeah. And because it's built, it was, you know, it's, it's evolved from a, a blogging platform. It's something that was designed to be ease of use. And then that there are tons of ways that you can sort of adapt it to different uses. I use and, it for my personal site. Yeah, as do I. We do it for the, the podcast as a WordPress site. You know, I, I've really enjoyed here at the radio station just sort of taking advantage of it and, and sort of growing what we're doing. You, you know, you in your internship, you were dealing a lot of with what we did today is how do you get – you know, the invisible nature of audio, entice people to listen to it or, you know, adapt it, write it up, get the information that's there out to out to people. It's, it's rich content, but people don't always gravitate towards audio. Sure. Uh, but I think podcasts are sort of yes. changing unless you're sitting in a car listening to live radio. I mean, I'm an urbanite. I'm on the metro all the time. You can't really rely on on live streaming over data. But you can have a podcast that's yes. going to be on your phone, in your headphones, isn't going to get interrupted when you go through a part of the tunnel that doesn't have service. Um, and I think that's maybe at least for for me and others like me, why podcasts have been such a, yeah. a successful medium. Yeah. And that's a transition that radio still has to go through is the understanding that, you know, if you're not dealing with breaking news, um, you know, how, you know, getting that content in a way that people can sort of program it themselves, download it themselves, listen to it when they want to, as opposed to when you say that they should be listening to it. I, you know, I quite like the um, NPR One app. Yeah, which has we had some a couple of the developers in here. Yeah, yeah, no, and and, um, and you know they were trying to crack a lot of the problems that they have as being a you know being a network but not being a network. You know, trying to support the local radio stations, but at the same time trying to promote the NPR content. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, no, that's a really that's a really sweet sweet app. So let's talk about let's talk. You know, you're you're a female journalist. Yes, I am. And you, uh, one of the things we we're talking about was uh, you haven't been too happy with uh, the way female journalists have been portrayed in media. Yeah, as as we were talking about before we turned on the mics, there was an episode of Scandal which I did not watch, but only saw headlines about that. You had a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter who was supposed to interview the president and turned off her tape recorder within five minutes of meeting him and hopped into bed. And I just can't emphasize how frustrating that is, not only because I think it it gives journalists, particularly female journalists, a bad name, but probably has a very real impact on the way that non-journalists see journalists mm -hmm. and a damaging one. I don't. I think people assume the worst yeah. of, of journalists anyway. And in that kind of portrayal, I mean, House of Cards is just about the worst when it comes to that. Um, <laughs> like, you know, pretty well, much any time you see a woman who is a journalist on screen, she tends to have real problems with the basic ethics of journalism. She tends to be uh, willing to cross boundaries with her sources. Trainwreck, the movie, the... Um, What's her name? Amy 
Schumer. Amy Schumer. Amy yeah. Schumer was a female journalist who slept oh through God. her source. Yeah. And I just, it happens so often that it is just, I don't know what it is, but it's so frustrating to see that over and over and over again. It's a terrible plot device. It, it's one that I think maybe it's time that we outgrow. Uh, I would hope so. We'd hope so because there are many, uh, you know, wonderful uh, female journalists or many wonderful journalists who, who get short shifted. But we're not going to we're not going to save the way journalists are portrayed on <laughs> the media <laughs> because we're, we're by and large portrayed uh, pretty poorly. But, you know, speaking of uh, WBR um, in Boston, uh, the movie Spotlight in many ways, I feel, is, has got the, uh, the, the newsroom, the modern newsroom right. I thought Spotlight was a phenomenal movie. It is a great and I think accurate portrayal of the kind of real work that goes into journalism, that it's that it isn't magic and it isn't fast and that it requires a lot of elbow grease and digging through documents. Obviously, most of us don't have the time to do that. And these ethical days. considerations. Right. You have to think about the fact that you're dealing with real people, especially in a case like that where it's such a sensitive topic and I was lucky enough to share a newsroom space with Sasha Pfeiffer. I don't know that she knows who I am. I was just a lowly intern at the time and she was a reporter there. But, you know, she's somebody who I greatly admire. I think the Globe is a is a great paper. Marty Barron's essay in the Post this week about what it was like to be portrayed on film, but also what it was like to be part of that that journalism team that put that investigation out into the world. Uh, was a really moving piece uh, for people who haven't read it. Please go find it. It's it's on the Post website this week. I think it's a really important movie. I hope it wins all the Oscars. <laughs> for for my generation of uh, journalists, there were many of us who were really inspired by all the president's men and the work that uh, Woodward and Bernstein did at the Washington Post. Uh, one would hope that this sort of inspires people to so they understand that our process. It is, you know, time consuming and long, but is also very, can be very fruitful and very important to the communities around. Anything that, that shows our our, um, our industry in, in a positive light and showing the strengths of it and why it's important in a democracy to have a free press and have journalists who are willing to put the time in to get the story right and get it out there, you know, kudos. I think it is eye-opening for non-journalists, Spotlight, and affirming for journalists. Yeah. Because it's, you know, even though most news organizations do not have the resources to support an investigative team like the Spotlight team, I think it may inspire some organizations to find those resources, mm -hmm. say this is important work that needs to be done and it needs to be supported. However, we make that happen. One of the more interesting things that I have noticed, I mean, the Post is one where you have a change of ownership to somebody who can afford to sink billions you know, into a news news organization. The Intercept is another where you've got Pierre Omidyar, who is obviously another very wealthy person. You've got organizations like Politico that, that does all of these events, these sponsored events that, you know, you have to get away from purely hoping for ad revenue mm -hmm. to support what to support the work. And U.S. News is another one where we do have a news team and the news team does produce a lot of content that tends to do really, really well on the site in terms of traffic. But our revenue doesn't necessarily, we don't have a lot of ads on our site. We have some, but not to the extent of a lot of other news organizations. We've got the rankings and licensing of the U.S. News Shields that you see all over the place. You know, when somebody somebody is ranked well, they, they put their, they, it helps support the work. 
Right. Which no. is, you know, you have to you have to find ways to do it. No, it's and it's important work. And when we had this sort of contraction in our industry because of digital, but also because of uh, the downturn in the economy, and you know, journalists lost their jobs, and the size of uh, newspapers shrank, or you know, newspapers closed. Uh, you, two two newspaper towns became one newspaper town became no newspaper towns, and the things that newspaper that those newspapers and those news organizations provided still needed you know the investigative report investigative reporting we've said this a couple of times on the podcast several times on the podcast that you know investigative reporting is time consuming is expensive but it is one of those ways in which a news organization can separate itself from the pack and that can can provide a unique service to the community that they're not going to get anywhere else it's the core of what we do. It needs to continue. We just got to find a way to pay for it and, and to keep it going. I thought one of the most disheartening things I heard last year was one of the Pulitzer Prize winners for investigative reporting, a little paper out in California. Yeah. By the time the awards came out, the reporter responsible for the story had already left journalism and was working in PR. Yeah. And it's just, it breaks, it breaks your heart to hear stories like that. Um, but the other thing I would say is that and I know this is blasphemy a little bit, is I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing for news organizations to go digital, fully digital. I know that there are issues with access for a daily paper, but print is expensive and it... Distribution is expensive. Distribution is expensive and you have to lay things out. And, you know, that is... Those are resources that don't go towards reporting. And... I know I'm a little bit biased, but I think the more resources they go towards reporting instead of overhead, the better it is for journalism and for readers. And so if a paper has to make the choice to go fully digital because they want to cut out those aspects of the production so that they can spend their money on supporting staff who are doing journalism, I don't think that's such a bad thing. Yeah. Uh, the product that we produce is news. It's not, it's not paper. It's not the actual physical thing. It's actually <laughs> yes. the reporting that we do that we get out there. I'm really sort of excited, just watching what's happening with the, with the Washington Post as it becomes more and more digital. It becomes, uh, you know, they've had a long climb to get to where they're at, and it really was when Be- Bezos purchased the paper and started putting money in it and hiring a lot of very smart digital people. You can see, if you're following it, you can see that it's the newsroom has changed a lot and, and they're trying lots of different things. And I think, you know, they're a model that I think a lot of the big the big outlets are going to go toward, towards. But, of course, you know, there's a lot of stratification, a lot of different types of, of news outlets. I was sitting here thinking as you, as you were talking, the only thing that House of Cards got right as far as the character of Zoe was how crappy her apartment was. Yeah. <laughs> that looked like a, a reporter's apartment in Washington, D.C. It was really, really crappy. It, uh, it's amazing how many people on TV and in movies have apartments that just they couldn't possibly afford on their job salaries. No, <laughs> yeah, but hers, time. <laughs> hers, you, could, you couldn't see them, but you knew there were cockroaches on that uh, uh, yes. under, under her clothes or yes. something. That it, it was a really crappy <laughs> apartment. It's like, okay, well, that, the only thing they got, got correct about that. And the other thing was that we, that we were talking about is, see, you know, the portrayal of women in the media, portrayal of women in the media, period, how they're portrayed in newsrooms, how they're, portray- how they're, how they're portrayed in life, how the news covers women. One of the things that, that I saw this morning on Facebook, Jennifer Lawrence was at this Hollywood party about uh, uh, gender, gender rights. 
Um, and, you know, she spoke at it. And what the first headline that was up there was about, you know, that she spoke at this gender rights thing. But all the other headlines were what she was wearing, the fact that she wasn't wearing her bra, that she had a see-through top on. And, I mean, that's so indicative of how, you know, any woman is portrayed in, in many of our stories. Well, to bring it sort of back around to politics, we're trying, I think, in in the public in the public forum to have a conversation about what gender really means with, for the first time, a real viable candidate who mm-hmm. happens to be a woman who very well could be in the White House next year. I mean, others have come sort of close, but, but Hillary Clinton is the first one where it really might happen. And it is hard. I mean, you know, leaving aside the question about whether or not the Bernie bros really exist I myself have been subject to some fairly nasty things online when I have tweeted about Hillary, as I think pretty much anyone who has or mm-hmm. or has said anything I, about. I'd be interested to see if if other if any of the male reporters from your organization or, or receive the same sort of. I think I think it it is not about the reporter, although you do get this. You know, I think not necessarily for me, but for women who support Hillary. Uh, there have been the comments that you must only support her because she's a woman. You're voting with your lady parts instead of based on the best candidate. And I, I think it's a really important discussion to be having, and it's requiring some soul searching and, and about how we view women in public life and how it's really impossible to separate out Hillary Clinton's femaleness from her her positions and how she is viewed and how people a few months ago, she she made a comment about something that Bernie Sanders had said about shouting about guns. And it probably didn't mean anything when when Bernie said it, although he is known for being quite shouty uh, <laughs> at his rallies it's from Brooklyn, whereas Clinton has constantly been hit over the tone of her voice, how loud she is. And she made a comment about how women are are perceived as shouting when they're just speaking. Being forceful. Yes. And and there are studies to the effect that basically say women in positions of power, women in the workplace are portrayed, are viewed differently based on how, or rather based on, viewed differently than men are doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. So a woman who is assertive in in the boardroom is seen as shrill or bossy or negatively ambitious, whereas a man, that's a sign of strength and is a positive thing. And it makes it really, really hard to to separate that out when it comes to somebody like Hillary Clinton, because she's you you cannot not view her through the lens of her being a woman. And and so people push back on the idea that coverage of her is sexist. But in my view, it can't not be. It can't be part of the conversation. And and we have to be aware in the the language that we use as, as press. And I think and this is not just male journalists. I think women journalists are just as susceptible to using coded language about or gendered language, rather, about how we talk about her and how we talk about her in relation to her opponents. And it's just something that, that we as media have to be extra, extra careful about when we look at the criticism of her over the years and make sure that we're trying our best to separate out the difference between things that she has done and things that she has done as viewed as a woman. So what would you what would you say is an example of coded language? Shrill. 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 She's you would shrill. never 
ever hear a man described as shrill. And you see it all the time with somebody like Clinton, particularly Clinton, but not only Clinton. Yeah. And this perception of her has been that way since she was the first lady because she wanted to be part. I mean, there was a, a huge pushback when she made it clear that she wanted to be part of the decision making process. And they wanted her to be the first lady. They didn't want her to to have a say. And she was at that time pushing health care and things that were not necessarily part of the, what, what people viewed as the first lady's role. So her pol- whole political life has been about sort of redefining who she is and, and as a candidate, as a, as a person in the political process. Well, one of her first big sort of dust-ups on the national stage was the stay home and bake cookies comment that uh, when she was when Bill was running to be president in 1992 and, and she made some comment about not being basically a stay-at-home mom and got into huge trouble about it and now we still have the first lady cookie contest every election mm-hmm. cycle the potential first lady is expected to put out a cookie recipe to be printed in Family Circle magazine that is voted on and is one of those sort of like straw polls that, it, you know, whoever wins is ends up being, you know, a, a predictor of who wins the election. I mean, Michelle Obama, who is another professional, qualified, happens to be the spouse of the president who has taken a backseat in her own, yeah, you know, and, her and own ambition. What do we know for do her? The same thing. What do we know for her primarily uh, for being the first lady is, is the um, the school School lunch program, mm-hmm. the school, the the the, the smart healthy eating, eating, the healthy yeah. eating. Yeah. you know, a a traditional, traditionally female role taking care of the health of children. And she was a more advanced. She was more advanced in her career than than Barack Obama was when they met. Yeah, I, I think this goes <laughs> a lot a lot further than you know. We should be we should not be talking about if Hillary Clinton is wearing a pantsuit. We should be talking about let's bring us back to the issues. Let's bring us back to it's a weird. You know, because the, and, and this goes into the whole shrill, shrill argument that uh, that Donald Trump has about political correctness. We mm-hmm. shouldn't be ha- these. We should not have these considerations in our words. We should not be, you know, oh, you shouldn't say that because that's going to reflect poorly on uh, Hillary Clinton or or that the 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 president is a black man. We shouldn't the, these these things. You know, the, these things shouldn't be part of our discussion, but they are good to the discussion because, you know, he's a black man and she's a woman in a role that traditionally we haven't had women achieve this level. And so she's in, in many ways a pioneer. I'm not trying to advocate for her. You vote for whoever you want, but this is just sort of a, the conversation. Absolutely. Well, and it, and it is a shame that we talk about her hair or her pantsuits because that is not what makes her qualified or not qualified to do the job that she is applying for. Yeah. And yet we do. Yeah. The funniest thing that I saw that when um, Hillary Clinton was up on the Hill and they were grilling her about the Benghazi emails and, and one of the... Oh, was that that hearing? And one of the... Um, <laughs> was that was House or was that... Yeah, House. Was it one of the, mm-hmm. uh, one of the congresswomen who was, who was grilling her and had made this... Was, was basically asking Hillary Clinton if she were alone the night in question. And Hillary Clinton laughed at it because she's smart enough to, to see the joke in that. The whole room laughed. And because, the congresswoman didn't realize what she'd stepped into. Yeah, that she was basically asking if Hillary Clinton had someone there with her in, in a non, I don't know, non-usual <laughs> way, <laughs> you know, but in a more so, possibly quote-unquote sexual way. Right. I, and, I don't think that was what she intended to ask. I think what she was asking right. was whether or not any of her staff right. were there. 
because this thing was happening and Clinton was aware that this thing was happening. But Clinton saw the joke and she laughed. And then, of course, right. she got, the way the way that the question was asked was, you it, know, it was were you alone thing. all night? And the whole room cracked up because that's a sort of a stereotypical line of questioning in like a police drama. Right. Right. You know, when you're watching CSI or, right. you know, whatever and, police and, procedural TV show. And the congresswoman, I think it was Martha Roby, I think, yeah, of Alabama, think so. who she just she was like, I failed to see what is funny about this. And Every, the whole room was like, you just stepped into a police procedural. <laughs> How could you not see that you're asking a question that that sounds like a line from a TV show? Yeah. Um, oh, my gosh. But it was I think that was a nice moment of levity that came very late in the that was a, hearing. A, it, it was like 730. Yeah. We had somebody so. who was covering that. That was. Uh, yeah. That was an ordeal. Yes, it was a a long day. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It was really cold in that room, which is another thing. (laughs) I know it's not intended to be sexist, but the people who set the temperatures in the Capitol building are men wearing wool suits. Well, we can't have the they can't have the congressmen (laughs) all sweaty when it goes before the camera after the hearing's over. They have to be. But it is so cold in there. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, all of the people, all the press sitting in the tables in the hearing room, are all wearing their jackets, like their outside heavy down coats because it was so cold. Yeah, you political reporters have it so tough. I know, I know. That was um, <laughs> the one um, well, was and the, it and Iowa? the dinner places were all closed when they took when we finally took a dinner break and it was like there was if you didn't bring food with you we were out of luck. <laughs> yeah, who, who packs the lunch right. to go to, go to the, <laughs> go like, to the I'm Capitol. I'm so hungry and I'm so cold. <laughs> but there was, I think, was it in Iowa that or maybe it was yeah I, th- I want to say it was Iowa where they were they were making fun of all of the press people who who had their winter coats on and the weather was like the, it was cold the first day but the next day oh they all got their coats on. and I'm sitting here thinking that's probably somebody who's flown in from DC who had one bag and you know one sa- change of clothes and one jacket and that's how they're going to dress the whole weekend so well, I, yeah. people from non-DC places like to mock DC for being wimps about the weather. So, <laughs> and, and we are we people yes. abandon their cars on the Beltway when it snows. That's been known <laughs> to happen, and uh, we're 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 on the cusp of being a southern city. So, very soon we'll be completely. It'll be it'll be like Arizona very soon. Uh, Hopefully not too soon. Not too soon. We'll have to see. But that's, <laughs> you know, scientifically speaking, it's another podcast. <laughs> well, so let's sort of wrap this up. What do you anticipate you, you doing over the next few months with the campaign? Well, like I said earlier, I think we're probably going to have things. The, sh- the shape of the campaign is is quickly solidifying, I think. Uh, so while we may have races that go on for another few months, I think it's going to become pretty clear how you know, what November is going to look like sooner rather than later. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how it shakes out, though, because it is absolutely an unconventional year. No matter who wins the nominations on both sides, they are going to be someone who is a first, I think, um, in some way. And something that Chris Christie said endorsing Donald Trump yesterday, you know, Trump is throwing out the playbook, but he's not the only one. He's not the only one who is breaking molds, challenging the conceptions that political journalists have had for a long time. I think, you know, even when you go back just a few months, the kinds of predictions that people were making about Trump in particular, but Sanders as well, just have been completely blown out of the water. I mean, nobody anticipated this race going the way that it has. 
Um, so I'm just going to hold on. I'm just going to see where it takes me because I've stopped trying to predict too much about what's going to happen. It's everything has defied prediction. You're just going to stand there with open eyes, your recorder and your pad, and you're just going to watch and see what goes on and yep. report. Yep. Well, that sounds good. Thanks for coming in. Absolutely. This is fun. Next on It's All Journalism. Statistics is answering questions, just like journalists do. It's taking data and performing uh, analyses on it to see, is this going to find a result that's worthwhile, is statistically valid, right? And when you're doing journalism, you're kind of doing the same thing. You're going out and collecting information and saying, is this a story? Is there something to go off of here? What's important about this? In our next episode, Sean McMinn, a data reporter at CQ Roll Call, joins us in studio to talk about building a newsroom around data reporting. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. This week's podcast was produced by Amber Healy, Michael O'Connell, and Nicole Grisco. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>